Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of The Week. Linda Chavez is off this week, but Tim Miller of The Bulwark is sitting in for her. And our special guest this week is Greg Sargent, a columnist at The Washington Post. Welcome all. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of news popping, um, and uh, I want to assure our listeners that we will get to the abortion uh, situation. It wasn't really much of a decision exactly. Uh, we'll get to that in due course, but not today. Um, I wanted uh, Greg Sargent to join us, and I'm so glad he could, because he wrote a piece um, about the Electoral Count Act, which is a drum that I've been beating also, and we've discussed on this podcast, um, you know, the Democrats have made a lot of noise about voting rights um, since the 2020 election, and that's fine, but um, I, I'm concerned, some of us are concerned that it pays insufficient attention to the dangers that lurk from attempts to screw up, not the casting of ballots so much as the counting of ballots. So Greg Sargent, thanks for joining us. Um, tell us about the proposed reforms to the Electoral Count Act. And, and I, I know it gets a little into the weeds, but do your best to lay out some of the dangers with the existing law, which was passed in 1887. Okay. Well, it certainly is a complicated topic. And thanks for having me on, by the way. And, and I really appreciate all you've done on the ECA, too. I just want to say that. No, um, we're, we're, you know, there aren't many of us out there pushing this, but I, I hope that changes and I think it's starting to change. Um, so the simplest way I think I know how to put this is to say that the ECA creates a set of processes to count the electors in Congress. Um, and the way the law is drafted is incredibly confusing and opaque and actually doesn't give us clear guidance about how certain scenarios and certain disputes over the electoral count would be resolved. Um, these weaknesses and ambiguities are precisely what uh, the Trump movement tried to exploit in trying to prevail on Congress to not count the electors properly. Um, without getting into too much detail, uh, the basic problems that I think still exist that have to be fixed are that it's too easy for members of Congress to object to electors um, and that it's not at all clear what happens if states get past the safe harbor provision. Um, it has to be clarified so that the safe harbor provision is clearly something that's quasi-definitive. If a state resolves its own disputes or electors by the deadline, by the safe harbor deadline, Congress needs to count them. Um, a third piece of this that has to be clarified is that the vice president's role it really doesn't include resolving congressional disputes over electors. Those are three of the most important things. Maybe a, a fourth one is the law has to clarify how congressional disputes over the electoral count are resolved. Incredibly, we don't really know from the law what would happen in every scenario in which there's a dispute in Congress over counting them. 
Right. Um, and it's also the case under the current law, although as you point out, and as anybody who's taken a look at this law can readily determine, it is so poorly drafted. I mean, yeah. it just goes on for pages and pages without so much as a as a piece of punctuation. You know, it's just it's horrible. Right. But in any case, um, one of the uh, one of the flaws with it is that it seems to suggest that the uh, so a state sends its uh, electoral uh, count to to uh, the Congress, and just one senator and one congressman can object, right. um, and and that will then trigger you know both houses having to adjourn and go debate it you know among themselves and so forth, um, and um, and so the, the one of the things that's been proposed is that uh, it require you know, a much higher threshold, you know, maybe a third of those sitting or whatever would have to object or, or something like that. Right. 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 I think that that would actually go a fair, fair amount of the way towards making a difference. Of course, the problem is in a situation that we can anticipate in which the Republican Party in, in a future election is, is even more devoted to subverting electors in Congress than it was in 2020. Uh, it might not be hard to clear some of those thresholds. So by by itself, dramatically raising the threshold for objections wouldn't be enough. Right. Um, okay. So you you highlighted a report that has come out. Some people are you know election officials are proposing reforms. Have you gotten any feedback from the the Congress? You said you have a sense that there's some movement. What are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, here's what I can say right now. I can't say who is going to come out. For this, but I'm reasonably certain that we are going to see some Democrats come out for it soon enough. Um, okay. Now, um, yeah. Well, the reason that this is delicate is, and I'd love to hear what you guys all think about this. One of the big problems is that if just Democrats endorse these reforms, the chances of getting Republican senators for them would evaporate fairly quickly. And I think what we would need to see, if possible, which it may not be, uh, is for kind of a group of reform-minded and civic-minded and democracy-supporting Democrats and Republicans to come out for this, for to have a prayer. Tim Miller, um, do you think there are some Republicans who would support this? The question is, are there 10 you know, um, I think that's the big question is, are, are there 10 Senate Republicans that would support this? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that there are likely to be even fewer in 2023 than there are today, though. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that, you know, while Manchin and Cinema, I, I think for in, in a lot of ways, for good reasons, from my perspective, but but in some cases, for, for not as good reasons, have been reluctant to um, you know, want to to push changes around the filibuster. I, I don't know that they've really ruled it out for, you know, more narrow, you know, reforms uh, uh, such as this, right? And I think that that is especially true. I think Greg is correct that, that they'd have more cover to do this if there were a handful of, uh, of Republican members. I, this is the, the frustrating thing about, about this whole topic for me. Um, and I, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times. Anytime I get a chance to get Democrats listening to me, this is this is my pitch to them on daytime MSNBC and whatnot. Um, is 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 has have we gone? Have 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 they gone to Mitt and Murkowski 
and Mansion and Cinema and, and the people that work together on the infrastructure bill and said, what would you guys support? Is there something more simple that you can support? I, I think that we've gotten so wrapped around the axle on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and HR1, which all have some good provisions, some not as good provisions. It's like, are, are there simple reforms that we can get people behind, um, making Election Day a holiday, uh, a couple of changes to the Electoral Count Act to make it more clear? You know, could they not get people on board for some of those changes? Uh, it feels like Democrats have been reluctant to do that because they feel like once they do that, then that means HR1 is dead. HR1 uh, is already dead. Right. And, and so, I, you know, time is ticking on this um, and, and to be able to get something done. And and I do think if pitched in a really narrow way, you could get some Republicans on board. Whether or not you could get 10, I don't know. But I think even if you had five, that would definitely give Cinema and Mansion more cover to, to make changes around the rules. Uh, D- Damon, uh, what, what's your sense of this? Do you think that the Democrats have um, lost the thread here about what's most important? Well, yes, I, I sort of have thought that for quite a while. I think HR one uh, was was not really a, a very serious effort to address the problems of 2021. Uh, it was proposed a few years ago. It was never truly uh, designed to be a bill that passed, uh, and I, I think that. The, the, the kind of partisan and polarized dynamic of the Congress in our time leads each side to sort of cluster around a maximalist position and then to stake out the position that if we give an inch, uh, then the other side will end up somehow prevailing more easily. And I think that that's um, often not true and probably self-defeating in a lot of times. So I, I agree with what Tim was saying that going for narrower but actually far more focused reforms on the actual problems that are confronting us most severely would be much more productive. Whether it would be productive enough to actually pass, I I don't know. But I do think there would be more uh, of an opportunity, much in the same way as there we've seen uh, passage of the smaller, uh, more modest infrastructure bill with some Republican support in the Senate, a decent amount of it in the end, actually. Um, and it's precisely that sort of backing away from the most sweeping things that the most activist elements of a party want to get done that can act as a sweetener for uh, the other side. And that's like, you know, that's American politics and Congress 101. But it's we've seen now that it can work, and uh, at least in some selective areas. And in this, uh, I think this is a good example of one where it might, and it's hugely important. I think the work that Greg is doing on this is is really, really uh, essential uh, and is, I think, properly focused on the true threat that, that we face. Yeah. Um, Bill, you were talking about the dangers of, uh, of what might happen uh, on January 6th, way back um, before the election, I think, back in, uh, in the fall of last year. So um, what's your response to what everyone has said so far? Well, I'd like to add a point to the mix. Uh, and, and that is that in many ways, uh, African-Americans serve as a moderating force inside the Democratic Party, you know, as they did in the presidential nominating process in 2020. On this issue, that's not the case. 
right? There is an extreme sensitivity uh, to the issue of voter suppression among African Americans for very sound historical reasons. Uh, and that makes it very difficult for the Democratic leadership and for non-African American Democrats uh, to back away from provisions that in the broader scheme of things are not really that meaningful. Uh, it makes it very difficult to change the focus from casting votes to counting votes uh, because you know, African Americans have a long history of having you know, procedural devices that seem neutral on their face used against them uh, to prevent them or from casting their votes or lowering the numbers who can. And they are not about to let that happen again. Uh, now, the, the problem is that the legislative vehicles that respond uh, to their specific needs and sensitivities are dead in the water and likely to remain so. Uh, but a lot of symbolic politics with historical resonance is being practiced here. And it makes it very, very difficult, at least right now, to execute the kind of shift of focus uh, that other participants in this program are rightly suggesting. So in other words, uh, if there were some sort of, if, you know, if, if Tim's advice were followed and, and people went to the moderate, more moderate um, Republican senators and said, look, what can you get behind and let's find some common ground and do the easy things um, like reform the Electoral Count Act and make Election Day a holiday and whatnot, um, the reaction would be among African-American Democrats would be, oh, wait a minute, you know, you're ignoring our needs and you're putting this first. That that can't happen. Is that is that the view? Well, yeah, let me, a couple of things about that, uh, Mona. First of all, I don't think that can happen until it becomes clear uh, to the Congressional Black Caucus and others that the Democratic leadership and the president of the United States have done everything in their power uh, to enact a broader piece of legislation than the kind of proposal that Tim, I think, has very sensibly put on the table. Uh, and we're not there yet. And in particular, uh, uh, people who are pushing for broader legislation don't think that President Biden has done everything in his power to move the Democrats in the Senate who are standing in the way of filibuster reform. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, there is such a bipartisan group that already exists. I've been working with them for many years. Uh, you know, their manifestation in the House uh, is the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus. In the Senate, it's more ad hoc, but it turned into a pretty sizable block. Uh, an organization called No Labels has helped catalyze this process, and that would be the right place to begin once, if ever, the attention does shift away from expansive bills that won't pass to more moderate and bipartisan bills that might have a chance. So back to you, Greg Sargent. You know, as Bill was talking, I'm thinking, you know, he's saying, well, we're not there yet, but, you know, we don't have 
we don't have much time. I mean, it really, you know, the, the way things work in terms of legislating and moving legislation and getting your ducks in a row and so on, it's, it's glacial compared to the electoral calendar. And uh, people are already going to be, you know, thinking about, uh, about the midterm elections. And it's certainly not looking good for Democrats holding the House uh, past uh 2024, uh, 2022. Right. And, and obviously, if, if Republicans take the House, which they clearly have a good chance of doing, reform of the Electoral Count Act is, is, is a- absolutely a dead letter. There's one thing I wanted to point out about the effort to get Republicans for this. Um, and I don't understand why this case isn't made publicly more often. But Republicans have every reason to support reforming the Electoral Count Act because it's in their own interests. If you think about the enormous pressure that was brought to bear on Republican members of Congress, on Vice President Pence, on Republican state legislatures in places like Michigan, to help Trump corrupt the outcome of the election precisely through the exploitation of vulnerabilities in this Electoral Count Act, then you realize that reforming it would actually protect Republicans from coming under such pressure again later. If there were no feasible scheme to overturning the electors in Congress, which reform could actually accomplish, then there would be no real incentive to pressure all these various actors at different levels to try and participate in that scheme. And that seems like a really strong case for Republicans to make to their own voters about this. I mean, if Republicans who tell us over and over that they would never dream of stealing a future election can really prove it to us by supporting this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tim, I, 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 think, I think that most of the uh, Republicans who would be persuaded by Greg's argument are uh, future former Republicans, uh, as Pete Buttigieg would say, Uh, at least maybe not future former Republican voters, but certainly future former Republican members of Congress and the Senate. I I think that, you know, the Richard Burrs, the Shelbys, the Portmans, the people who are retiring might be uh, persuaded by this, but they're retiring for a reason. Um, uh, I think that (laughs) the remaining folks would be very happy to be uh, pressured um, to overturn elections. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, a a feature, not a bug, as they say. You know, even the most, you know, uh, what we would have called, you know, formerly sort of country club establishment Republicans who, you know, you don't associate at all with the Tea Party or with Trumpism, um, are now, because of the, the shift in the, the Republican base, are now having to go out and say things like, you know, we have to, you know, we have to stop the steal. The, you know, Glenn, I keep thinking about Glenn Youngkin, who's running for governor in my yeah. state of Virginia. And, uh, and he, you know, he's about as establishment as you can get in every way, a multimillionaire, you know, whatever investment banker, I don't know what he does exactly, but you know, he, he, uh, is, is saying things like election integrity is his number one issue. Yeah. And then that's, and this is, I think the, um, the signaling part of this is is the other problem, right? Uh, in the same way that, uh, that a lot of the types of Republicans that might be attracted to what 
Greg is talking about, like the Youngkins are signaling that they want to do election integrity. That is their sop to, you know, the base, about half of which, you know, um, if, if you're being more optimistic, maybe, for, you know, 40 percent uh, think that the election was stolen. You know, that is what's driving, you know, a lot of these state legislatures actions. You know, I talked to the lieutenant governor of Georgia recently, you know, who, um, you know, who said that basically all of the Georgia bill was entirely driven by more mainstream Republicans who are trying to appease, you know, the base with a electoral reform that, you know, was in their view, um, you know, reasonable, but that they could use um, as a, a cudgel um, uh, rhetorically, you know, to kind of demonstrate that they're fighting, that they're fighting this, you know, the left, um, uh, despite not actually believing that there, there's any truth to any of the stuff, the steel stuff. The, doing On the other hand, doing the Electoral Count Act would be doing exactly the opposite. You know, you'd be poking these folks in the eye um, and saying, you know, you're trying to steal elections. We need to, we need to protect the country from you, my base. Um, and I think that is going to prevent a lot of these guys from wanting to do anything, even the ones who, who agree on the merits. All right, Greg, final thoughts. Any uh, response to what Tim or anyone else had to say? Um, yeah, I'll just add what I think is a, an, an additional and very depressing nuance to what Tim just said. So if you think about the Republicans who might actually embrace something like this, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, uh, maybe a handful of Republican senators like Romney, they would fully understand, I think, uh, the wisdom of doing this. But as soon as any Republican like that supports a reform like this, then it tells the Republican base that it's even more toxic, right? Yep. Because yep. Anyone, who, anyone who has spoken up for the actual integrity of elections is an enemy of Trump. So, so <laughs> that makes it you know, harder for, um, I guess, the Republicans kind of that are inhabiting that no man's land between people who stand up for our democracy and those who want to corrupt it. Uh, it'll be a lot harder for those people to support something, even though it would be in their own interests. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean for this to become the We Are Doomed podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we already have a couple that. of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Greg, much appreciated. You know, power to your hands. Uh, keep it up and uh, keep us posted on if you make any progress and hear any good news. OK, I think there might be a few things coming, but I don't know how far they'll get us. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Let us now turn to a discussion about um, the Afghan refugees. Uh, We had a speech from President Biden this week in which he lauded the um, departure from Afghanistan as a great success. I don't know too many people who think it was a great success, but we did succeed in extricating more than 100,000 people in a very short period of time. And most of those were not U.S. citizens, but Afghans. Um, And um, so uh, many of them will uh, be coming some of them have already been vetted, you know, completely and have SIV visas, which means that they've had everything tested that you can possibly test about a person. They have biometric stuff. They have, you know, their whole histories and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, and some of them were in the midst of this uh, process, but didn't get time to have it finished. So first point is, uh, and I'll go to um, Damon with this, um, 
the Biden administration, among the many things that it's gotten criticized for, and I know you think probably a lot of the criticism has been misplaced, but some of it you may agree with, like the um, sort of the the really uh, painfully slow processing of these visas when they were constantly being warned way back since the since the president took office. I mean, he, there have been calls from various people to you know hurry up the the process of of getting the visas for the Afghans who were our who helped us. And that seems not to have been done very well. No, definitely not. I'm not going to rise to Biden's defense on this one. I mean, I recall on this very podcast, I don't remember exactly when it was, probably last May, roughly, having a discussion about uh, the uh, the Afghans who worked for uh, the American military as trans- uh, translators and uh, working for various American contractors in country, uh, many thousands of these people. And, I, and on the podcast, we talked, I think Linda took the lead, as she often does, about immigration matters. About and Linda had written a piece for the Bulwark about this very subject. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was definitely in the air, and people who care about these issues knew that this was coming. If you assumed that we were, in fact, going to be uh, vacating the country, first by September 11th, then it got moved back to the end of August, you knew that this work needed to be done and that it's a it's a cumbersome process. It's a bureaucratic process. It involves lots and lots of forms and filling out paperwork. And this is on the other side of the planet. And uh, it was going to take a while. Um, and the fact that I don't recall seeing really any news story that noted that the uh, Biden administration was seriously moving on the whole visa issue for these people until sometime in July uh, is is a real uh, example of bureaucratic malfeasance. I mean, the administration really did drop the ball. I don't know, other than the buck stopping with Biden himself, which of course it does, I don't really know enough about the, as it's called, the administrative state to know where the ball got dropped and who might be more proximally responsible. But clearly this is not the way any of this should have been handled. The moment Biden got into office, and we've now seen, I've seen over the last week, lots of quotes that Biden has given over the last 10 years, making very clear that he wanted out of Afghanistan through the uh, Obama administration. That was clear at the time, but there are other things that I hadn't seen before in, in notes of various other people that have been highlighted again in the published record. Um, he knew he was going to leave, uh, you know, some people who wanted to stay thought, well, yeah, uh, Trump made this deal with the Taliban, but now Biden will come in and he'll reverse it. But, but Biden knew that wasn't going to happen. And his senior advisors would have known it as well. So you would have assumed that as early as, say, February, they would have been on this. All right, we've got about six months. Let's get our ducks in a row and let's actually get this paperwork processed so we can save these people. And instead, it appears that it sort of just got dropped until it was very, very late. And that contributed to the mess that we've seen over the last uh, two to three weeks. And by mess, again, as you noted at the top, I don't mean the withdrawal in general. And I do think that it is impressive that we did end up getting over 100,000 people out in well under a month and incredibly uh, treacherous uh, times. 
on the ground. However, uh, you know, this this issue about helping the, these Afghan refugees uh, was was really handled appallingly. And um, we, we haven't seen the, uh, the 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 end of the story about how it's all going to get resolved, unfortunately. Bill, I have to tell you, I was frankly a little surprised um, by Biden's um, hard heartedness. I don't know if that's, you know, well, yeah, about, about this, that, uh, he seemed kind of callous about, uh, what we were going to be doing to our allies in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, furthermore, he, you know, he said back in April, you know, we will not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. Uh, and then he says the buck stops with him, but then he blames everybody else, uh, the Afghans, the Trump administration. And of course, the Trump administration deserves lots of blame, which we'll get to when I come to Tim. But, um, <laughs> but uh, division of labor, <laughs> but division of labor. But, you know, I, I, I thought that one of the things about Biden that was uh, going to be refreshing in the aftermath of Trump was that this is somebody who was a, you know, a genuine human being and not a sociopath. <laughs> and he, he's, his, his, I'm not saying he's comparable to Trump in any way, not at all. But I am saying I'm disappointed that he's, he knowingly betrayed these people. I'm sorry to put it that way so harshly, but that's how it seems to me. This has not been his finest hour, Mona. And, you know, as Damon wouldn't defend him on a different point, I'm not going to defend him on this one. Uh, the various groups that were trying to get the administration to focus on the issue of the Afghans who had worked with us loyally and effectively for two decades uh, have uniformly reported that they got negligible or no response, despite, you know, showing up at the White House with their hair on fire over and over and over again. Uh, it's very complex to explain. I think that Biden has been angry about Afghanistan uh, ever since 2009 uh, for, vari for various reasons. I also think getting, getting closer to the present, and I can't prove this, but I certainly suspect it, that the issue of dealing with Afghan refugees got wrapped up into the broader politics of immigration. Uh, and that once the administration got so severely criticized for its handling of the southern border, and deservedly so in my opinion, uh, that created an, a, the reverse of a permissive environment for generous, accelerated public treatment of the Afghan refugee issue. And it's one of these issues where uh, if you get 999 cases right and the, the thousandth wrong and something happens in the United States to American uh, citizens as a result of a decision you've made, uh, then all of the incentives are to err on the side of caution at the expense of the well-being of the overwhelming majority of the people who need to be helped. Uh, and uh, when the full story of this episode is written, I fear 
that I will see an inside story of 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 political uh, decision making in the case of the Afghan refugees. Yeah. Um, um, Mona, can I can I say one brief Please. thing in response sure, to that? Sure. Um, yeah. I, along the lines of hard heartedness um, in Biden, uh, you know, I, I did want to highlight. I mentioned in my comment that I've seen some quotes from stuff I hadn't seen before this past week from Biden, and and here's a little passage from Richard Holbrook's diaries. Um, this this comes where he, they're having a he's having a conversation with Joe Biden during the Obama administration. And, and Holbrook says, Joe took the position plain and simple that we have to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, Holbrook says this shocked me. And I commented immediately that I thought we had a certain obligation to the people who had trusted us. Biden said, quote, uh, I, I'm, I'm interpolating here, F that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. And then Holbrook says, I said, but are there any larger strategic consequences here? What are they? And he he tried to outline them, and Biden responded by saying that's a bunch of right-wing crap and not true. So uh, I do think that uh, this is, I suppose, the the real Joe Biden (laughs) we we are seeing here, Um, even if it's uh, surprising to some of us Mm. uh, that the evidence was there in the paper trail, I think. Well, uh, at least some one aspect of him. Yes, Um, of course. course. Well, okay. so so, Tim, um, people might say, look, um, it worry about uh, possible terrorism from these refugees isn't completely xenophobic. It's not completely crazy, because if you look at Europe, um, there were episodes of uh, people, you know, refugees who had come from Syria turning around and committing terrorist attacks in uh, and other kinds of attacks in, in Germany and other places. Um, so it isn't it isn't complete xenophobia on the part of uh, the critics who are concerned, right? Although it is way overblown. Uh, I, I'd listen to that case a little bit more about the asylee issue at the border um, and and the concerns about drugs and uh, coming across the border and violence, border violence as not being completely xenophobic. I, I didn't. I don't think this is really akin to the situation in Europe. Um, uh, obviously, you had uh, you know Syrian refugees and and others from the region, you know, pouring across the borders there, uh, coming in through Greece and, and other other places. Um, it was much easier for them to get through and and around vetting. And there was structures. no vetting. There was yeah, none. Exactly. Yeah. There, yeah. Forget some vetting. Yeah. There was like yeah. there was basically none. I, this is completely different. I and mean, the people coming from Afghanistan are stopping over in Doha, right? <laughs> and getting and getting vetted by professionals um, at great length. I mean, if anything, we we over vetted, as Damon uh, I, I think kind of you know alluded to a little bit with how how strict the paperwork requirements were for these SIVs. Um, you know, some of these people they have very deep relationships with. I mean, we were you know we have bulwark um, readers uh, and veterans who have been talking to all you know all of us throughout all of this or, or have examples of friends and people they'd worked with that for decades now we've been there for so long you know they've been yeah. interpreters for, uh, you know this is this is a long time for someone to be a terrorist in hiding if they've exactly. spent 15 years working with the US military uh, so I, I, I do think it's xenophobia I think that it's reflected by the by the fact by the way 
that that even a majority right now of Republican voters in polls support bringing Afghan refugees here. I do think part of this is negative partisanship, and this is maybe owning the libsism working in our favor a little bit, that like um, they want to stick it in Biden's eye um, by saying that we should have been better to these folks, um, that I th- also think that there's good-heartedness and genuine um, belief in the mission and, and um, belief in what our military did that drives some of this. So I, I think that the J.D. Vance is the world... Um, that are that are worried about you know people blowing up malls and all that are 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 full of it and they're preying on xenophobia and they're doing it in a performative manner, um, and and I, I don't think that there's really any good good reason for this and I, I think frankly if there's a criticism for the right from the right of Biden that has purchased with me it is it is the criticism that they, that he did not do enough for the people that worked with our military um, though obviously. What goes along with that criticism is that Trump did even less, um, you know, yeah. during his time. So, yeah, before I no, I, I actually agree with that completely. And, but before leaving the topic with you, Tim, I just want yeah. to um, have you comment on what I think you've probably heard uh, Olivia Troy talk about the meetings that she was in in the Trump administration um, when this topic came up of of helping the Afghans who helped us and. And Stephen Miller, um, the president's uh, dark wizard, uh, basically, shut, she says, basically shut down uh, any discussion of, of uh, you know, of, of greasing the skids to let these people into the country. Um, I have heard that. Uh, Sam Peake wrote a really good piece during the administration about this called Uninstalling Stephen Miller for the Bulwark um, that I would recommend if people want to go back into, into the archive. But um I, I, absolutely. I, this was well known within the administration. Um, uh, Stephen Miller obviously had a faction of loyalists within the administration. Trump, um, for all of his uh, nefarious efforts, was also notoriously lazy and I, I did a pretty poor job um, over the course of the four years of putting loyalists that agree with you know his draconian immigration views in, in various government positions. So it's not just Olivia. There are others within the government that, that bristled at this and that, you know, you saw through leaks and through other comments. So I, I don't think this is really I, I, Olivia, I think, brought a lot of personal insight to it um, that, that I'm just really grateful that she's spoken out. But I, I also don't think this is a he said, she said in any sort of way. It was it was well known and accepted that Miller was gumming up the works in every way possible, not just uh, in the refugee program, in the SIV program, in the legal immigration um, department, um, you know, uh, creating ridiculous rules where if, you know, you don't check one box correctly, that you go back to the beginning of the line, you know, all of these sorts of anything possible to make it as hard as possible to get folks here. I, I think there is no doubt that left Biden in a very bad situation when he got in. I don't think it completely excuses this administration's lack of alacrity in, in moving to remedy that before they pulled out um, over the course of the beginning of this year. If they knew that they were going to stick to 831, I, I do think that it was incumbent upon them to try to roll that back much more quickly than they did. Um, obviously, they were dealing with a lot. Uh, Trump left them with a lot of um, I don't. I guess we can't curse on Bug to Differ. Uh, uh, you know what sandwiches um, to deal with. Uh, so this was just one. But um, but but yeah, there's no doubt that was that was certainly an issue. Okay, Bill Galston, you wanted back in. Yeah, just very quickly, two points. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to have to start to focus pretty soon on on the fact, and it's an unfortunate fact, 
that the legal architecture for dealing with the refugees once they get to the United States is highly imperfect. As a number of analyses have pointed out recently, uh, they do not qualify for various forms of ongoing assistance that people who are brought to the United States under other auspices uh, would receive as a matter of course. And we're going to have a big problem on our hands unless we can somehow adjust uh, the legal structure for treating for dealing with these people once they get here. Well, uh, it is also an opportunity for private charities to step in, though, isn't abso- it? Absolutely, yeah. and you know, and and there there have been a number number of discussions about that. I think, in the interest of time, I will suppress the second point. Oh, okay. Well, let <laughs> us turn uh, now to a related matter, which is um, uh, President Biden's political standing in the wake of this. Now, his his popularity was sinking. Um, before the Afghanistan pullout went south. So he was losing altitude um, probably because of the Delta variant, although you can never say for sure, but it sort of, it seems that way. Uh, and then and then the, uh, the the perception that the pullout was done poorly uh, seems to have also harmed him. He is now underwater in terms of popularity by a tiny margin. I mean, it's pretty much even the number of approves and disapproves. Um, but Damon, um, going forward, I mean, should should Democrats be panicked about this? Or, you know, what's the significance of uh, the current moment and, uh, and Biden's sinking popularity? Well, if the midterm elections were a week or two away, they should definitely be panicking. Uh, but uh, fortunately, it, it, they are not. So uh, that, uh, the midterms are a long way away. Now, of course, there are things between now and the midterms that will help to uh, uh, influence how the midterms turn out, like, for instance, the extremely ambitious uh uh, a larger infrastructure bill, budget bill, reconciliation bill, slash, 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 uh, that is uh, working its way through Congress in its very confusing way. Um, we all know and have talked about on the show that passage of that, along with the smaller infrastructure bill, is a sort of really bizarre gauntlet. And there are many, many places in which that could fall apart and the margins are razor thin. So a Biden who is riding high, firmly above 50% approval is different in that setting than a Biden who is sort of languishing around 45% uh, uh, approval. And actually, I think uh, even looking at 538's aggregate of polls as of Thursday afternoon, um, the the bad polling just keeps coming in. It's actually a little bit worse than you were indicating, Mona. Uh, the poll of like polls of likely or registered voters now has Biden at forty five point nine and disapprove at forty eight point six. Oh. So we're we're talking in two to three points underwater, and the trajectory is down. So he has not plateaued yet. Um, I mean, I predicted 
uh, when Afghanistan went totally south in mid-August with the collapse of the, the government and the military, uh, that by September 11th, Biden would be at about 45, and uh, he seems very much on track for that. Um, and it could go lower. I'm not really sure. I do think that the, the whole issue of uh, the Delta variant and how that is going to start impacting uh, uh, public school uh, experiences right about now uh, all over the country uh, with uh, the virus spreading among kids and then home to parents uh, is going to have an effect as well. So uh, this is not a good period for the president. But, you know, as for the larger setting, you know, if if Delta remains bad, if Afghanistan gets worse, and God forbid we see a terrorist attack somewhere uh, growing out of uh, uh, the results of our withdrawal, and, uh, and then uh, the legislative agenda for the Democrats in Congress collapses, uh, then we're going to see downward spiral. And then I really will start to get worried for November 2022. Fortunately, we have a very long time and about 18 lifetimes in our current political news cycle uh, for yeah. him to recover. So uh, who knows? But clearly, if you look at the aggregate polling, basically from the start of his presidency until the very end of July, he was pretty much flat around 52%. And then he went off a cliff. Uh, and we're, we're just haven't seen where he lands yet. Tim, I get the feeling that... Um you know, that we're looking at a country and ourselves that is is not very stable. <laughs> um, you know, just every day you see news reports about, you know, school board meetings, which used to be about the, you know, quietest, most gentle things that you could have in America, uh, are now the scenes of pushing and shoving and screaming and and crazy people standing up and saying that, you know, vaccines make scissors stick to your forehead. And I mean, it is... At, it is just remarkable how everything now is so fraught and um, and and in this environment, it seems, and we've been saying this for for many months that you know it's it's more important now that there be a successful presidency than under most circumstances. So um, so Biden's, you know, I, you can say, look, Biden deserves his 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 loss of altitude, right? I mean, he made some mistakes, and 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 it's bad, and you know, he's mishandled some things. On the other hand, um, it isn't good for the country if we have another another you know sense of of failing leadership. No, and I, and I think that there's a psychological effect um, that that is rippling through you know, people my kind of age and younger um, of, of, of boy, like, are we capable of doing anything? Like, are we capable of succeeding? I think it's underscoring a lot of the populist energy on both sides, a feeling of needing to sort of overthrow the system and try something completely new. Um, and in that sense, I think the Biden administration is really important. And, you know, and I get sometimes frustrated um, with the, um, 
you know, pushback that, that we get from people and when we've offered, I think, very fair criticism, good faith criticism of Biden, because um, it, it comes from a place of wanting and really needing him to succeed um, because the alternatives out there in, in the political environment are not great, to say the least. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that um, he had done a good job up until, um, you know, this summer. Uh, really, I, I think of of keeping his um, focus on on the big picture, and I think that you might hear some arguments that in Afghanistan this is part of it. That his focus was uniting the country, domestic concerns, fixing the economy, and, and all of that is um, uh, you know uh, second. You know, Afghanistan is secondary to all of that, and and you know that by by bringing home resources and. And attention away from that, he can focus more on on the things that he promised during his campaign. Uh, but but in order to achieve all that, he needs to be perceived as as competent. And the thing that I worry about most right now, and I think the biggest challenge for the next six months for Biden is, can he reassert a sense of competence and comfort among um, among swing voters, among voters that crossed over to vote for him, um, among even people on the left who might be concerned. Uh, because you can see the criticism now starting to congeal. Um, you know, he he the, he took a lot of arrows to the Democratic primary. They never really landed. Trump never really figured out how to attack him the way he did Hillary and Jeb, Miles Foss, and others. And now there is a criticism of of as doddering, incompetent that is congealing on the right. I, I think it's unfair in a lot of cases, but but they've got to be conscious to not play into that, and they need to get wins on the board, and they need to avoid future um, uh, issues that they've, to the extent possible, uh, that they've run into in the past few weeks. And, and I think that's a big challenge ahead for them. Bill, um, you know, the, the, the Biden is, uh, has dementia, you know, all that. That's, that's very common on the right. Um, and, and to some degree, you can, you can discount it. Those people were never going to support him under any circumstances. But, you know, the, um, the, the moderates, the swing voters, even the, the Republicans who voted for Biden but but voted for Republicans down ballot, those people are really important for, for Biden to keep happy, it seems to me, and keep on the team. And, um, you know, our buddy Mike Murphy, uh, another politico, um, argues frequently that um, – that in politics, you have to make your base feel a certain amount of pain, you know, because if you give your base everything they want, you're not going to win. And um, I, if, if I have one big criticism of Biden so far, other than the way we left Afghanistan, it's that he isn't, in, he isn't willing to inflict any pain on the left wing of his party. And he, you know, if he would just take the win on this infrastructure bill and, you know, pocket that. And then, you know, try to get some of the things in the in the Build Back Better program. I just think he would be so much better positioned. He'd be more popular. And, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party is not going to they're not going to leave him. Um, and so I, I just think he's he's been he's given the left just too much uh, power over him. What do you think? <clears throat> I wish I could disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know my my view, which I freely confess is not the majority view or even anything close to it within the Democratic Party, is that what we needed 
most of all from a Biden presidency, is a period of calm, competence, yep. and national healing. Right after the 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 tumult of of the Trump years and much that went before the Trump years, uh, and if that meant you know a few years of sort of center left Eisenhowerism. Yeah, so be it. But the mood of the Democratic Party uh, was shaped by other factors, two in particular. You know, one, the sense with ample evidence to back it up uh, that the least advantaged among us were hit the hardest during the pandemic. You know, which from their standpoint was a pitiless X-ray of the accumulated inequalities of you know of the period of what they characterize as you know as fundamentally misguided neoliberalism the second thing is this the democratic party has been frustrated for more than a decade by the ability to move its legislative agenda in any way there was you know, and, and from the standpoint of most Democrats, uh, the period following the midterm losses uh, in 2010 has been a period of policy stagnation. There was an enormous amount of frustration built up, pent up energy, and some new ideas. And that portion of the party saw the Biden nomination and election as the entering wedge uh, for an agenda that was much more sweeping uh, than I suspect the American people on sober second thought are prepared to go along with. And that is why uh, the principal hemorrhage for Biden has occurred among independents, not Democrats, you know, his strength among Democrats is virtually unchanged through all of this. But uh, among, Dem among independents, the sort of people who made the difference between the majority and the minority in places like Georgia and Arizona, and certainly in the, 20, in the 2018 House elections, uh, those people are not getting what they thought they were going to get. Right. All right. Can I just um, offer one thing on the polling? And I, I, we've been very negative, and and I think for good reason. Uh, it's a negative moment. Um, I, I think for the administration, and and with all obviously all the other surrounding issues happening in the, in the country. We, you know, we have the the associated climate issues. You know, we're seeing in New York and here in California and Louisiana, and and you know, obviously the abortion thing, which which you, I'm sure you guys will get to next week. Uh, but, but also the the, the Delta variant. I, I I think that that a lot of um, casual observers, um, you know, when they respond to polls like this, are, are are almost speaking more about themselves. Like when they speak about their favorability rating of the president and and a governor of their state, um, and and there are partisans that that don't, but. There's there's a lot of casual observers of politics who who are speaking more about the mood of the country and the mood of their state. And I think if you look at there were some morning consult polls out today of the states, and if you look at Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, you know their favorability is tracking on about the same 
um, uh, slope as Biden's, right? Uh, they don't have an Afghanistan issue that they're dealing with right now. Obviously, they're doing some really hard things on COVID that Biden doesn't have to deal with. So, so there are a lot of different, ex- uh, um, you know, elements to this. But, but I, I do think that that is an important caveat when we're looking at the polls right now. That that you know there is a, just a general dissatisfaction. Um, with what is happening right now with the Delta variant and, and in particular, but also some of these other issues. And I think that is weighing Biden down a little bit in a way that might not be directly related to, to his policies. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, and, and when you add to that, the um, the fact that for a, for a brief shining moment there, we all thought that, you know, the, the COVID emergency was finally coming to an end and that normal life was resuming. And that lasted about three weeks. And then we were plunged back into masking and distancing and the rest of it. And uh, the, the, the crushing disappointment of that is probably being reflected to some degree in these polls as well. I agree with that, Mona. Uh, just but very quickly. Yeah. It probably was not wise for the White House to hang out a mission accomplished banner around the 4th of July. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I bet they'd like to take that back. Yeah. Maybe there should be a new rule. No more mission accomplished banners (laughs) under any circumstances for any White House. (laughs) The mission is never accomplished. It's never. (laughs) All right. Um, oh, there was one. I mean, and, and Tim also mentioned this on another podcast that we did uh, this week. But uh, but we should just note for the record that um, after Hurricane Katrina, we spent billions of dollars fixing the levees around New Orleans. And it does seem to have worked. I mean, the, mm-hmm. Ida was a terrible hurricane and there are a lot of people suffering and without power and so forth but we didn't have we didn't have another katrina so that's something the levees held so now we just yeah. have to fix the new york subways and <laughs> the new orleans and texas electrical grids uh with the same yeah. fervor that we fixed the levees in new, or- in new orleans and we'll be in business <laughs> all right let us now turn to our highlights or lowlights of the week damon linker well, you know, I was going to, uh, for a few days this week, I was planning to, to highlight a Ross Douthat column about Afghanistan that I really loved. I even sent it around to my colleagues here uh, to say, hey, this is really great, even though you're going to disagree with it. But I, I have to say, we didn't have time today to talk about uh, the uh, abortion situation in Texas. So I just, I will take the opportunity to highlight the fact that I really do consider this law that, is, that has gone into effect in Texas and that as of Wednesday night, uh, very late Wednesday night, the Supreme Court has allowed to remain in effect while objections are filed in various courts. Uh, I consider this to be one of the most appalling laws I've seen enacted in my lifetime. Now, of course, I'm not going to say ever in American history because we've had some bad ones. Uh, but... Uh, in fact, relating to that point, I mean, there is something to be said for there being kind of historical echoes to the reaction against Reconstruction in the post-Civil War period and the way this law is authored. For those who aren't aware, the law does not, I mean, it, it, it basically says you're not allowed to have an abortion after six weeks, which for many women will mean more like two weeks, since many women don't even know they're pregnant until they're three or four weeks along. But even if you are pro-life and think that this is on, on the whole a just 
law. Um, the way that it is written is specifically designed to create the kind of procedural confusion that led to the Supreme Court uh, uh, statement on Wednesday night. It's, it's, it's written in such a way that the state of Texas does not actually enforce this law. It, in effect, deputizes all Texans to to go out and find women who are going to have abortions, the doctors who are performing them, the Uber drivers who drive the women to the clinic, and anyone else involved to be subject to lawsuits uh, that, if successful when brought in court, will bring uh, the, if the plaintiff is a, is a victor, will bring them $10,000 plus all of their legal fees paid by the defendant. Uh, this is a kind of bounty hunter uh, ethic and legal regime being instituted here that I find truly appalling. And again, that is why the Supreme Court ruled the way it did Wednesday night, because the conservative majority decided... How can we intervene when there's actually no government uh, enforcing this law and therefore nobody has standing because none of these lawsuits have been brought yet? Um, and I do believe the conservative legal movement designed the law in precisely this way in order to gum up the works. And it's the idea that we can have a country where like blue states would say, uh, outlaw guns in violation of the Second Amendment and have it enforced by liberals bringing lawsuits against gun owners and then adjudicated by liberal judges is, is you can see very quickly that this is no way to run a civil society. And uh, I hope we we get rid of this as quickly as possible. Okay, uh, Tim Miller. Um, I would like to shout out to the governor of Vermont, Phil Scott, and uh, just to um, uh, pile on Greg Abbott, I'll add um, uh, the contrast uh, with Texas as the, as the low light. Um, if we're going to talk about Texas legislature, the Texas executive order. Um, that that bars private companies from having vaccine requirements in the state is deeply insane. Um, uh, I would argue on the same level as as what Damon was just talking about. Um, it is uh, unconservative. Uh, it is causing completely unnecessary deaths in the state, and it comes from a man who himself has got a third booster shot before it was even approved by the. CDC, um, uh, so or FDA, excuse me. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that sometimes we just focus on on this too much, and people say, "Well, I, you know, Tim, that's just freedom. These guys are just pushing for freedom. Uh, what more do you want from them? Well, what more I want from the Greg Abbotts and Ron DeSantis of the world is to act is to act like Phil Scott, or the Republican squish governor in. Vermont. Um, Scott, if you if you follow his press releases, his social media feed, um, he is relentless about pushing vaccines in his state. Um, he is down to the number of people who have not been vaccinated um, and who have been vaccinated. Um, he's using incentives. Uh, uh, right now, they have a traveling, you know, walk-in clinics um, that they're adding in addition to all the existing, um, uh, you know, uh, CVSs and Walgreens, etc. in the state. Um, you you know, he's taking uh, traveling clinics to parts of the state that, that you know, don't have um, as, as much access. Uh, he's doing everything that you would want a governor to do, and it's working. 
Vermont has uh, the lowest deaths in the country, um, you know, something uh, along the lines of four or five X, um, the, the median state. Um, if everyone was acting like Vermont, um, we could have we could have protected, we could have uh, prevented uh, substantial hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths in this country. And, um, and so it's good that there's at least some, if you want to call them a barely a Republican, but some Republicans out there who are, who are, who are acting, um, responsibly. Okay. Bill Galston. Read Ann Applebaum's piece in the Atlantic on the new Puritans. Uh, I defy you to remain indifferent on the issue of the cancel culture and its victims after you have. Excellent. All right. I would like to um, draw attention to a piece that Robert Kagan wrote in the Washington Post, um, long essay called It Wasn't Hubris That Drove America Into Afghanistan, It Was Fear. And uh, the purpose of this, uh, of recommending this piece is not to necessarily endorse everything that's in the piece or any, every position that Robert Kagan has ever taken over his very uh, uh, excellent career, uh, but rather to, to say that it was a corrective, a necessary corrective to a lot of the commentary that we are seeing in the uh, you know, last several weeks about the fall in Afghanis- of Afghanistan. And you know, the notion that uh, what drove us into Afghanistan was you know, hubris and that we were there you know, sort of as part of an imperial venture and so on and so forth. And now we've had our comeuppance and uh, that it was that we were lied to about it by you know the elites and so on and so forth. He goes through and provides the the the, the historical memory that seems to have eluded people, namely that it was wildly popular. It was bipartisan to go into Afghanistan. We were all traumatized by the attacks of 9-11. Uh, people, it, it was inconceivable not to respond militarily to that kind of an attack. Uh, that's how most people saw it. You know, there was, there was, I think, one person who voted against it in the House of Representatives. Um, and so this notion that, you know, it was all some sort of a con by the military-industrial complex or some imperial venture is just, um, it's just a misreading of history. It's not to say that there weren't mistakes. It's not to say that we should have been there for 20 years, but merely that um, this this kind of uh, reevaluation where we claim, you know, where people are saying that it was uh, that it was imperialism is really um, is really not right. Um, so it was called. It wasn't hubris. It was fear. Uh, and I think that's I think that's mostly right. And with that, I would like to thank Tim Miller for joining us. Oh, Bill, did you want to say one more thing? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) I would like to thank Tim Miller for joining us. And I would like to thank Greg Sargent again for uh, his contribution. I thank you all for listening. It has come to our attention, by the way. That a lot of you listeners who we treasure, we love our listeners, and we have lots of them, um, but it seems that a lot of you are listening on your computers, which is fine. It's totally fine. You're free to listen any way you want, free country. But it's easier if you download the app, you know, the the uh, uh, either Overcast or, you know, Stitcher or any number of other apps, the Apple Podcast app. 
um, and uh, and listen to us on your phones, and you can take us with you wherever you go, or on your runs, or your bike rides, or whatever. So, um, just a you know thought that that might be easier for you. And uh, I can be reached at Mona Charon at thebulwark.com. I read all of the letters. I, I try to respond as much as I possibly can. And uh, again, we appreciate all of you. And uh, we will return next week as every week. <laughs>